text is from Job 1, 1 through 12. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. <clears throat> His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming about throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, today is going to be um, a very strange sermon. Uh, super strange. Now, as I was uh, thinking and preparing uh, for uh, this series, I've I read a lot of books on prayer. Well, I should say I started a lot of books on prayer. Didn't necessarily read all the books on prayer. But I started a lot of books on prayer and finished a few uh, good ones. And, you know, if you've ever read a book on prayer, they, they, they vary in what they teach on. Some of them are theological, some more practical, some more methods on how to pray, things like that. And you know, honestly, I was asking myself the question, did I read any book that actually, like, changed my prayer life? And the answer is, I ha honestly, I haven't. I haven't read a book that, like, on prayer, like, oh, my gosh, that transformed my prayer life. Maybe this happened to you. I, I imagine someone's going to send me their book that changed your life or something, but, which is cool. But I haven't. And so I was thinking, what actually has transformed my life of prayer? What have I learned over the years that has really helped me um, in my own prayer life, my life with God? Um, in prayer. And what has been the most helpful in my life over the years has been understanding the mystery of prayer. Now, it might seem silly to understand the mystery, but that's what I want to try to do today. I want us to try to understand the mystery of prayer, embracing the mystery of prayer, and thus the mystery of God's ways and the things that happen in the unseen. This has helped me immensely. And so, like I said, today will be strange. Today, you might actually just re outright reject what I'm about to say. What I hope is that maybe in this teaching, there's a, there's, there begins to be a crack in your worldview, and a little bit of light comes in. That's my hope. So, um, artists read from Job, and you might think that's a very strange passage to read 
uh, for this for a series on prayer. Like, what a strange passage, like reading in the book of Job. But actually, I think what the book of Job proposes is the exact questions we all have around the subject of prayer. And it is this question, why? Why do some prayers get answered and others don't get answered? Why do some people suffer and others don't suffer? Why does God seem to be silent a lot of the time in prayer? And does God have the world and time already set, all predetermined, and prayer is just an exercise in acceptance? Now, it's not uncommon for people to turn to the book of Job when they start to suffer. A really close friend of mine did this a few, several years ago when he was going through a ton of suffering, and he actually said that as he went to the book of Job, it made it worse, not better. If you've ever read the book of Job, in times of your own suffering, you will find this book very, very unsatisfying. A lot of people go to the book of Job thinking that it'll explain why they or their loved ones are suffering or why there's so much pain and suffering in the world or they expect to learn why God acts the way he does, why he allows or even causes righteous people to suffer in this world. Spoiler alert, none of these questions get answered in the book of Job. Actually, Peter Kreft, the professor of philosophy at Boston College, writes this on the book of Job. He says, Job is a mystery. A mystery satisfies something in us, but not our reason. The rationalist in us is repelled by Job, as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by Job. But something deeper in us is deeply satisfied by Job and nourished. When we read Job, we are like little children eating spinach. Open your mouth and close your eyes. Job, like spinach, is not sweet tasting, but it puts iron in your blood. Now, when Jesus talks about prayer, when he teaches on it either parabolically or he teaches on it didactically, one of the things that he hits the hardest when he's teaching on prayer is persistence in prayer, that you and I would keep showing up in prayer, that we would pray with importunity, that we would keep on praying and not lose heart. Persistence in prayer requires this Job kind of iron in your blood. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Job is pronounced Job, not Job. There's that. I thought it was Job when I first read the Bible the first time. Now, Job is an ancient poem. Now, it's ancient poetic wisdom literature, and therefore it uses a ton of of imagery. Now, that doesn't mean that the imagery isn't real. It just means that the significance of the realness of the imagery lies beyond the imagery. Do you understand that? It's, there's the imagery, and it is real, but it, what, what the, the meaning of it lies beyond the imagery. Now, the opening scene, the, the prologue, chapters one and two, sets up the rest of the entire book of Job. And it takes place in the heavenly throne room. By the way, um, this is going to be like more of a teaching, so if you take notes, you might stay more engaged or if you just like the mystery of the book of Job, you will be engaged. But if this starts to like get to teaching, just hang on, hopefully it'll make sense at the end. So take notes. So chapters one and two is about um, the heavenly throne room. So God has a throne room and the angels who are messengers of God come and report on how the world is doing. Now I wish I had time today and I don't. Possibly next year when we're in a different series, I wanna talk about this throne room and the angels and the other sort of like sons of God who are also in this throne room, super interesting stuff. But anyways, the heavenly throne room, 
And God's on the throne, and the angels, which are messengers, come to him and report on how things are going. Now, there is a character that shows up unannounced in this throne room. The text calls him Hasatan, or the Satan, or the accuser. Now, the scriptures are full of this kind of language of the unseen. Things that happen with God, or the angels, or the accuser, or the demonic, or the fallen things. And what makes Job really unique is that you get to see behind the scenes, so to speak. We get to see what Job doesn't see. Job doesn't know what's going on here in chapters one and two behind the scenes. He only knows what's happening to him. And that's kind of the point of the book. You don't, we know, but Job doesn't know. Now the Satan, notice he shows up and God's like, where have you been? Satan's like, around, to and fro, doing my thing. That was it. He doesn't even really answer the question. Like, where have you been? He's like, I'm not going to tell you where I've been. And then verse 8 through 11 sets the entire book up. I'm going to read it again. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan replies to God, well, does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him, protection? Have you not protected him and his household and everything he has? Have you not blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? But now, listen, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Oh, you think that Job serves you for nothing? No, no, no. You protect him. You guard him. You give him good things, all that stuff. Take that away, and I guarantee you, he will curse you to your, to your face. Satan publicly calls God out on his policy. He puts God's policies on trial. Now, it's important to remember that this book is primarily about God. And Satan puts it this way. Job is righteous, He's devout. He is the best follower you have right now, but only because you make his life so great. That's the one reason he loves you, and that's the one reason he follows you. You take that away, and he will curse you to your face. And this sets up the entire question of the book. This is what the book is trying to answer. Can human beings have a disinterested faith in God? That is, can humans believe in God without looking for rewards, and fearing punishments. Can we love God for God? That's the question that this sets up. Now, when I, when I read this first part of um, Job and Satan's, what Satan says to God, I can't help but think of uh, the great song by Chance the Rapper called Blessings. You know this song? It's like, Praises go up, blessings come down. You know the song? If you don't know, you need to get hip to the song. Now, this song is amazing, especially when life is good. You listen to the song when it's like sunny outside and your life is good. You're like, this song is everything. And then don't listen to it when you're not having a good day because you will hate that song. But anyways, praises go up, blessings come down. And then he says, it seems like blessings keep falling in my lap, if you know the song. Okay, so is this wrong? Is this like praises go up, blessings come down? Is that wrong theology? Well, not necessarily wrong, not entirely wrong. We're told in Galatians 6 that we reap what we sow. If we sow righteousness, faithfulness, worship, and love, we will reap good things for sure. That's, that, that is true. But listen, this whole thing, praises go up, blessings come down, or righteousness goes up, blessings come down, that's a formula. That's cause and effect formula. The book of Job is undermining and subverting this very formula. By the way, 
This formula is the formula of a lot of the Proverbs, if you've read Proverbs, another wisdom literature book. Like this proverb, raise your child in the way they should go, and when they get old, they will not depart from it. Ever read that proverb? People ever quote that to you? That's a formula. If I do this with my child, that child will become that. Is that true? Not always. Not always. Not, not in a lot of people that I meet in San Francisco. Raise a child in the way they should go, and when they get old, they will turn from you and move to San Francisco. <laughs> that happens all the time. I get so many emails from parents, by the way. So many emails. I can't tell you, like 10 to 1 versus congregants or their parents. Like they're just hoping. This is, I raised them right. Please, please tell me that. This is, but this is the formula that now Proverbs is this, this thing and Job is subverting that thing. Wisdom literature means the right thing at the right time in the right place. So it's, it, it all works together. So people believe this. If I do the righteous things, then God will bless me. But Job is undermining all of that. Now, Why? Why do we need this formula undermined in our own prayer life, in our own lives? Why do we need this formula that, you know, bless, I, I praise God or I, I bless God or, I, or, or I, I, I'm righteous and then blessing? Why does this formula need to be subverted? Here's why. What we learn in the unveiling of Job, in the book of Job, and all kinds of other places in the Old Testament, and, and, um, and Jesus also does this with, with uh, uh, God in the Gospels, is that the, the, the scripture teaching that God is a person. God is a personal God. That doesn't mean necessarily that he's your personal God as much as it means that God is a person and not just a being or an equation. If God were a supreme, a, just a supreme being or, a, or an equation, then we can figure out what to say in the right order and get what we want. So if I say this thing and then that thing and they end it within Jesus' name, then I get everything I want, right? We're looking for a formula or better yet, we're looking for an incantation. We're looking for magic. We're looking for a chemistry problem. If I put in these ingredients, then I get that. If the formula works out this way and we want a formula, we want a spell, an incantation, a chemistry problem, but that's not who God is. God is not an equation. God is a personal deity who is moving in all of creation and moving it to new creation and that at the same time is locked in a cosmic battle that plays itself out in our personal decisions and on the world stage. See, the book of Job is asking the question, is that the only reason why people worship God because he has the best formula? that when praises go up, blessings come down? What if praises go up and curses come down? Will you still love God? Will you still be devoted to God? Or will you curse him to his face? See, the whole book is set up like a bet. It's betting against this formula. Now, the idea of a big cosmic bet makes me very uncomfortable. I will confess that to you. But it's the Bible, and the Bible makes us uncomfortable at different places at different times, right? So this is what, what Job is proposing. Now, what, the question is, why did God take this bet? Why did God say yes to Satan? When Satan walks in and says, I bet you, if you remove your hedge of protection from Job, and you let me destroy his life, he will hate you. Why did God say, okay, you're on, bet? Well, I believe it's because God truly believed that Job already loved him, no strings attached. 
I believe that God believed. No, Job, is, Job loves me for me. He is faithful to me no matter what. And in the process, Job, from a human perspective, steps into the eternal experience of every single one of us. The experience of suffering and even the suffering of the innocent when there doesn't seem to be any cause or any effect. We go to Job and like, what did Job do wrong? And the answer is absolutely nothing. He did nothing wrong to deserve the suffering he was under. And if you read the rest of the book of Job, immediately Satan is actually given power to destroy his entire family and take away everything he has. And he's righteous going to that by all accounts, from God's perspective, even Satan's perspective, but he suffers. And this is a reality of our world, this side of God making all things new. And the reality of our world is that people suffer and people suffer in disproportionate amounts to what they have sown. That is true. So what's the answer to all this? Why does this happen? This is the question. This is the question I got a ton last week after the teaching. Why do these things happen? Now, I'm sorry to say, we're not really told. Not exactly. But we all know that overly simplistic answers when we're suffering through pain won't fix things either. Job does this. Job gives a kind of an overly simplistic answer to his suffering. In chapter 20, verse, in, in chapter 1, verse 20, he gives, he, he says this. At the end of his first round of suffering, he says this. And it's very, um, it's very, this is a very widely known verse. It says, then Job fell to the ground in worship after all the suffering happened to him and said this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed or be praised. Now this is a very famous line in Job in the Bible. People quote all the time. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, when Job is saying this, he means this. It, he really, really means it. And thus, because he says this, God won the bet, by the way. He blesses God at the end. Even though everyone around him died except his wife, and his wife's like, you should probably just curse God and die, which is awesome marriage. Like, it's a whole different series, like a marriage series. <laughs> you should just curse God and die. Just give up on this God thing. Like, he's, he's left you. Just leave him now. But Job doesn't. And he actually wins the bet. God wins the bet because Job says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And God wins. Job is saying that he will continue to praise and love God, even though he's experienced tremendous suffering. And that's commendable. So much so, when Satan comes back, God says, see, told you. Satan goes, well, well let, me, let me give him sores, and then sores will do it. Now, Job doesn't know what we know, though. Job is saying this, God, you did all this. You gave me stuff and then you took it all away. Is that true though? If you, if you read the book of Job, is it true? Did God do all this? The answer is no. The Lord didn't really take away or kill his kids. That's not what happened, right? Who did that? Satan. Verse 12 makes that very explicit. God says, you have power to do. Just don't take his life. Satan does this, not God which brings up a very important point. One of the things this book is doing, and is doing a lot of it, is showing us that there is more going on behind the scenes of our lives than we realize, and that simple answers won't do. 
When we pray, when we communicate with God, when we intercede, when we petition, when we ask, there is way, there is a lot much, there's a lot more going on in the unseen than we are aware of. That's what this is showing us. That when Job says, well, this is what's going on, he's trying to, he actually, the whole book, he's trying to figure out what's going on. His friends think they know what's going on. You did something wrong. He thinks he knows what's going on. He actually starts asking God, what's going on? And all behind the scenes, what we know what Job doesn't know, there's something going on behind the scene, Job's, Job's. There's something going on behind the scene, Job, that you don't know and you don't understand. He doesn't know that, but we know that. Here's another place. I want you to turn, if you have your Bible open, turn to the right um, past the rest of the wisdom literature into the, past the major prophets into the first of the minor prophets, Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 10. Now I wanna show this to you, verse two. Now some of you may know this passage already, but I, I, I want to highlight something that's kind of important that kind of builds this case that I want to make. Look at Daniel chapter two, and then I'll give you some context and we'll jump to, uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 10, verse two, and then we'll jump to verse 10. Actually, it's all on the screen, just look up. Open your Bibles, though, but for someone, just look up. Okay, here it is. Daniel says this, at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine, touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until three weeks were over. What he's saying there is he enters into a time of prayer and fasting. In this time of prayer and fasting, he ate no, like, rich foods, no wine, um, no shout, no, basically didn't bathe, none of that stuff. And then during that time, he finally had a vision. Three weeks later, he has a vision of an, of an angel. Like if you actually, if you have your Bible open, you can look on, on verse four. He says, on the 24th day of the fourth month, I was standing in the bank of the great river, the, the Tigris, and I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold of Euphaz around his waist and his body was like topaz and his face was like lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches and arms and legs were like gleam of varnished bronze and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. His voice came at him from all directions, like stereo all around him. And he sees this man standing there. And if you would see, you saw a man like this that sounded like this, you would fall to the ground trembling. And what angels say to people when they show up to people is, do not fear. Why? Because they're scary as heck. Don't fear. So they say this to Daniel. And so this is what the angel says to Daniel. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Sorry, verse 10. Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you. Stand up. I have, I, I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood trembling. He continued, do not be afraid. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourselves before God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. That's as long as Daniel was fasting. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Okay, so NIV kind of glosses over a lot of the cosmic language, but let me try to explain this to you. 
and pretty much every commentator, every scholar agrees on this interpretation. Daniel was praying and fasting for three weeks. Daniel was finally visited by an angel. The angel reassured him that his prayer had been heard immediately before God. So he prayed and God heard it immediately. And God sent a messenger angel in response to his prayer. Go to Daniel and give him this response to my prayer immediately. So you would think it would be prayer, 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 answer, prayer, answer, that quick. That's what you would assume would happen. Unfortunately, God's intended quick response to this prayer was delayed by the activity of a certain evil cosmic power that the angel identified as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, princes referred here, whom Michael is the chief prince, are spiritual beings who oversee various territories. You're like, that's just Old Testament. No, Ephesians chapter six, Paul says, principalities, powers, will get there eventually. This, this is how the, the, the biblical worldview is. It's, it, the world is teeming with all of the spiritual activity. Now, this angel was sent, was held by this like evil, cosmic, probably demonic, we don't really know if it was demonic or fallen angel, what it was, over Persia, detained there, Michael, who is the chief of these messengers, these, these little bit more than messengers, higher ranked messengers, comes, has the only power to release this angel. He releases them in some sort of battle. We don't know, we don't really have insight into this battle. And this angel then is dispatched to Daniel and is like, Daniel, I made it. Three weeks later, I made it. Here's what I have to tell you. Okay. Now, honestly, this account and Job's account that I just read seem unbelievably bizarre to most of us modern Westerners. We are culturally conditioned to dismiss talk about non-physical conscious beings, angels. Now, we might believe in aliens, but angels, no way. <laughs> now, for the most part, this is because we live in an age of materialism and the therapeutic. Now, materialism, I don't necessarily talk about like shopping. I talk about, I'm talking about things aren't real to us unless we can touch them or measure them in a laboratory. This is the very popular phrase, we believe in science. Like science is a sentient being. Unless we can measure it, we don't believe in it. We're also therapeutic. We will also believe in things that we feel. So things could be irrational, but we're like, but, I, but it makes sense to me. Like, I feel it. My therapist said, yes, go with that. And so I was like, hmm. Like, we, you know that's true. You know that's true. When we feel it, it's true, or if we can measure it, it's true. But we in the modern West are a global and historical anomaly. You would be hard pressed to find any other culture in history or any other culture outside of the West presently that doesn't assume that the cosmos are teeming with spiritual beings whose behavior can and does benefit or harm us. The Bible is steeped in these same assumptions, which is the tension and the battle from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. If you read it with these eyes, you will see the whole thing as a cosmic battle that humans are very much involved in and that, that the Satan and the gods, this is why God says, don't worship any other god but me. There's all this temptation towards false gods who are actually godlike, that are actually gods, that the Bible uses the word gods. There is these 
things and beings that tempt us all the way through the scriptures, and this is why we must be faithful to Yahweh, and then eventually Jesus comes and destroys their plan, but still we have to be faithful to Jesus, and Jesus even helps us to pray like this. The Bible has the same assumption. Now, I believe there's the, we're coming into the age of the, the end of materialism. I believe we've, we've, that's run its course, to be honest. I believe a lot of us and a lot of people that we talk, especially places like San Francisco, there are things that materialism can't explain and we believe that. I think even there is some, um, there is some, uh, there is some science, quantum physics, that's, ex- that's explaining the unexplainable by saying it's unexplainable, we don't know, we can't really measure it because when you go into there, there's like, there's like things teleport and things lose time and there's other dimensions. Like it's, this, this stuff is real. And we're finally coming to the end of like, maybe there's more than we see or we can measure. Maybe there is more. I believe this is an open door for the gospel for an entire generation of people. We're coming to this time. Now, I bring this up to say this. Now, what does all this mean? Okay, you're saying, what does this all mean for the prayer series? We're in a prayer series. David, it doesn't sound like you're in a prayer series anymore. What's going on? Why do I say this in a prayer series? This is why. There are cosmic things at stake when we pray that are shrouded in mystery. Prayer isn't just about your devotional time. It's not about you just like sitting with God and like just being with God and like just like, I just wanna feel good before I leave the day. I want like something. It's not just, there's part of it that is that like that, but it's not just that. The model prayer that Jesus calls us to pray or teaches us to pray is this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, assuming that the God's kingdom is not fully here, that his will is not fully done, and that heaven is actually a space where God's will and God's kingdom is, and it needs to be fully here on earth. And so he teaches us to pray this way. I want you to pray this way, and then it ends the prayer but like this. And deliver us from the evil one. This is everywhere in the scriptures. Because of our materialistic worldview, we just don't see this. That there is an evil one and evil things. There is a kingdom that opposes God's kingdom. There is something that Jesus actually won for us on the cross that we have to step into in prayer. These things are real. Okay, back to Job. In the middle of the book of Job, he has, Job has friends, and they're not really good friends, and they keep telling Job that it's his fault. It's like, your fault, it's your, you did something wrong, you need to repent. I have repented, you need to repent more. There's some secret sin that you're hiding. There's something that has to do with you and your faith. These are really bad friends, right? Job keeps saying no, insisting no, no, it's not, it's not. But he, at, he asked God, like, you need to explain yourself, God. I want my day in court. I want to defend myself before you because I don't think I deserve what happened to me. And he keeps asking God to show up. Okay, so fast forward. Finally, in chapter 38, God shows up. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you're probably thinking what the characters are thinking. You're probably thinking, finally, some answers. God's gonna show up and give answers which is the brilliance of the writing of Job, because at the beginning of Job, we all know a little more than Job knows, but by the end, we all want answers like Job does. What, what is going on, God? When God does finally show up, Job expected an explanation. 
Job's friends expected condemnation, and they get neither. God doesn't explain what's going on with Job, nor does he condemn Job. God shows up through a storm and asks Job a series of questions about the world and the ocean and the animals for two chapters. And then Job responds to God by saying this, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? You're so much bigger than me in my life. You're so much bigger and your plans are so much bigger than me. I put my hand over my mouth, I spoke once, but I have no answer twice and I will say no more. Basically, I don't know what to say. Then, this is, this is where it gets really trippy. Then, God goes in again and he asks some more questions of Job, but this time he talks about these two monsters. He talks about two monsters, Leviathan and Behemoth. And he says, were you there when I defeated them, when I had to wrestle them down? Now some believe these animals are ancient Near Eastern mythological creatures, but that doesn't mean they weren't real. Regardless of, and there's all kinds of questions of Leviathan and Behemoth, regardless they are symbolic for chaos and evil in the world, something demonic or in opposition to God that God himself had a hard time defeating, but finally defeated it. And in the end, God is telling Job that the universe is terribly complex and that God doesn't rule the world according to a basic formula that you can control. See, I think... I might be wrong, but I would imagine there's a lot of us that would love to pray in a way that we can control God. Is there a way that I can control how I feel God or when I feel God? Is there a way I can control when my prayers, prayers get answered and how they get answered? Could you give me a way to pray that I can basically control God? That's what we kind of all want, right? We want an incantation, we want a spell. But God is a personal God, and God doesn't rule the world according, according to basic formula that you can control. But the world has forces at work that you can't even begin to understand, but God is ultimately wise, and by his wisdom, he is bringing the world to his expected end. He is moving the world in this direction. And Job finally gets it. He finally gets that God is actually at war against all of these other things and God is actually creating and recreating the world and God is doing this stuff and he was just like, he, his life just got played out on this like giant stage and he has this realization and in the end he says this in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the question, does Job ever see it all? Does he learn what happened in that opening heavenly scene? Does he learn about why he was chosen to suffer? Does he learn the intricacies about how the whole universe works? Does he learn about spiritual warfare? No, Job never sees it all, but he sees God. 
And perhaps that's much better. See, in the end, God said that all of Job's friends were wrong and they all needed to repent. But God said Job was righteous. Job was not wrong, which is very strange because Job had some wonky theology about God. At the beginning and towards the middle of the book, his theology of God was a little shaky, a little wonky. You would think like God would correct his theology, but he doesn't. God doesn't condemn Job. He says, you were righteous through it all. How, how did Job get through this whole ordeal being righteous? Here's how. Job never stopped praying, ever. When he complained, he complained to God, not about God. When he doubted, he doubted to God. When he lamented and screamed and yelled, he did it in God's presence. No matter his agony, he continued to talk with God, which is the essence of prayer. Prayer is you talking with God, you requesting of God, you asking, partnering with God. This is what prayer is. Again, more on this in the future. But Job's suffering and his questions didn't drive him away from God, but drove him towards God. Now, there's a place for our lament. There's a place for our questioning. And that place is with God. Now, I want to answer possibly two questions that might come up from this kind of short survey of the unseen when we pray. Two questions that might come up or I think need to come up. The first one is this. How does this, this, this what you just said, Dave, map over the New Testament teaching of Jesus and Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the devil on the cross? How does that map over that? Now, Jesus does have victory over the evil one. He does. And we get the same language as what's happening in Job and Daniel in Ephesians when Paul says this. In Ephesians 6.12, it's not on the screen, but listen. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't know what that means. We don't wrestle against like people. That's not where our fight is. We fight with people all the time. It's, it's this political side. It's whatever, whatever the fights are, whatever the divisions are. But that's not really where the battle is. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the, here it is, rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Literally what was going on with Job, literally what was going on with Daniel, and throughout most of the rest of the Bible. This is the worldview of the scriptures. When we pray, we enter into this cosmic, bigger than us thing that is shrouded in mystery and things we can't see and things we do see. And but, but what, then what's the answer? Is that like Jesus died on the cross and therefore there's no more battle? Actually, no, that's not it at all. Jesus won the victory, therefore join Jesus in his victory. You can join him or not join him. And even if you do join him, Paul says, we don't battle against flesh and blood, therefore put on the whole armor of God, which is basically put on Christ. Put on the salvation of Jesus, what he won for us on the cross. Put it on, all of it. Helmet, breastplate, and it, he goes into that whole thing and some of us have like flashbacks of like summer camp and stuff like that and like possibly, you know, Sunday school and all of that. So we think it's like, well, it's for kids. No, this is, I think that does a grave disservice to what's going on. This is literally clothing yourself with the salvation of God because we fight in a world of cosmic good and evil and we can easily be deceived and taken over by the enemy's lies and schemes and all of his, all the other things going on in our world. 
We live in a, in, a, in a contested space, in a contested world. Therefore, we have to put on the salvation of God. And then Paul says, after we put on the armor, verse 18, it says, therefore, put on Christ's victory and pray. So Paul says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Be alert and always be praying. This is, this is, this is how like, it, it maps over the New Testament. The second question that might come up or that needs to come up is, how does all of this help me to pray? Now, you said this, this has been helpful in your prayer life. How, how does it help me at all to pray? Jesus and the New Testament writers invite us to pray with the assurance that our prayers make a genuine difference. Our requests can influence God. We'll, talk, we'll unpack more of that in the future. But we're also told, told that our petitions interact with a mysterious realm of divine freedom and cosmic battle that oftentimes obscures any apparent connection between the initial request of our asking and the following answers. Does that make sense? When we pray, when our prayers leave our lips and go up, they actually enter this mysterious realm of God's divine freedom. Like he's actually moving the world to this ultimate end and not just that, but a cosmic battle as well. And this obscures any apparent connection that we have from like us asking and then what we get at the end. We're asking this thing and it's something that we're carrying and we want to see happen. And then as we pray, all of these things are happening. There's like your own maturity and there's actually spiritual things going on and there's God's ultimate plan and what God's doing. And then when your prayers get answered, if they are answered on this side, because remember Jesus' prayers weren't answered. Father, take this cup from me, not as I will, as you will. Was that prayer answered? The last part was, but the first part wasn't. There was some cosmic defeating of Satan involved in God not answering Jesus' prayer and him going under in the cross. There's bigger things at play here, is what I'm saying. Meaning, faith involves not only trusting in God's miraculous power, but trusting that God always is responding to my prayers in his own unique way regardless of whether I can see how it all connects or not. God is doing something. God is at work against the evil in this world, and God asks us to join him in this, battle, in this fight, in this resistance. And so it all comes back to what, how Jesus taught on prayer the most. Keep praying, don't lose heart. Keep praying and keep believing. Because as Jesus said in his parable, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people engaged and, and continuing to stand before God and praying and trusting in God for what they pray? I'd like us all to stand, but just a second before you stand. Here's how I want you to stand. So Paul says this thing in Ephesians 6. He says, after you've done everything to stand, stand therefore with the armor of God. And the standing is like a, a standing of like resistance against um, the evil forces of our world, against our own flesh, against the sat Satan's schemes, against our own um, resentment towards God. Like all the things that would come up to stand with, with the, the armor of Christ, like the things that, the victory of Christ to stand. And so I'm gonna invite you, you don't have to stand if you don't wanna stand, but if you do stand, I'm gonna ask you to stand and, and like stand like, like like, like you're resisting something. So would you stand with me as we pray? 
And as you stand, I, I'd like you to stand as if I'm like gonna push you over. <laughs> so stand like leaning forward a bit. Stand like, like you mean it, is what I'm saying. Don't just be like, you know, like a teenager stands. But like stand. And I want you to open your hands because this, this, this posture both emulates two things or, or reflects two things. It reflects this like I'm standing and I'm like, I'm, in, I'm engaged, God. I'm, I'm with you. I'm an alert and I'm praying, but I'm also open. I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered to your will. I'm surrendered to like, I'm engaged in this warfare, this battle. I'm not like surrendered to the battle, but I'm surrendered to you. And I don't know what's going on when my prayers leave this room. I don't know what's happening. And so therefore I move in trust. And so Lord, we together pray against the schemes and the lies of the evil one. And we pray now in our church and in this next season that there would be real ground taken There'd be things that we step into that we've never been able to step into before. There's ways that lies, even activity in our lives get broken off that feels like we'll never be able to get over it. And we pray that our prayers are heard and things would be released in, in like the, the heavenly realms in ways that um, we feel so empowered in Christ. And all of this would lead to your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.